Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you please pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, meet us here through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Show us who you are and heal us of our wounds. O Lord, let your word be preached with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness, that we might grow in likeness to our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Well, good morning, y'all. For those who do not know me, my name is Hunter Myers. I'm your canon for student ministry here at the cathedral. Did you know that the word teenager is less than a century old? It's turning 80 about this year, in fact. It's true. If you look up a graph of the usage of the word teenager in any equivalent in any language, you'll see a true flat line, and then it skyrockets in the 1950s which coincides with about the time in the U.S. especially we had institutionalized public education. Now I know what you might be thinking. I'm not bringing up teenagers to go on a rant about kids these days. I promise. I promise. In fact, our teenagers are incredible. They navigate an increasingly complex world while their bodies are just exploding with change. It's incredible. They are rock stars. But I think we may be surprised with how new the word teenager is because the experience of being a young person, of being a teenager, is ancient and awkward. So I'm going to share a little bit of wisdom from my peers who walk with young people professionally. These are the two primary relational questions that a middle or a high schooler is very likely to ask. Y'all ready for it? All right, parents, I hope this is a blessing for y'all, but this is a blessing for all of us. Teenagers, I'm sorry for giving away the secrets. Okay. For your average middle schooler will be asking, do you like me? All right, you don't have to raise your hand, but does that resonate with your middle school experience? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Awkward silence, that's right, perfect. Your average high schooler is asking a slightly different question. Do I like you? <laughs> now, does this resonate with your experience with high schoolers? Amen. Amen. All right. That's a whole thing. So those are kind of the two questions that, that young people especially are longing for. Do you like me and do I like you? And I'm here for some wisdom for our slightly older people today as well. We don't outgrow those questions and relational longings. Trust me, I've had jaw surgery, I've legally changed my last name, and I've grown a mustache. There's no chance anybody who knew me in middle school who remembers me at 13 will ever find me again. It's great. But I still have the same longings to be fully known and to be fully loved. Maybe we're all a little less awkward, but we all long for relational security. And insecurities are kind of funny, right? When you're a teenager, it expresses as attaching to a band or a sport or a friend or like shoes, I don't know, like whatever it is, there's, any of them are options for an identity marker. But adults, let's be honest, we do the same thing too. We just have a few more resources and a little less time between us and when we at least we're honest enough to admit, yeah, it's not really about the boat, is it? We often... Search for things because we're longing for security of being fully known and fully loved. And there's some fear in all of us, no matter who you are, 
that I cannot be fully loved if I am fully known. Every person has that same fear and longing. You're not alone in that. In this Easter season, our community has been focusing on encounters with Jesus, both before and after his resurrection. Last week, Dean Pete preached on the solid one in times of trouble. Christ is the solid one. Today, we encounter Jesus, who is perfectly, immovably, immeasurably secure. He is the secure one. So if you are stuck in the same relational ruts you've always been in, there is good news for you today. If you think that Jesus saying his father is a vine dresser and that comes across as bad news, there is good news for you today. If you experience, if your experiences incline you to detach from others, to isolate, it is good to see the Jesus who is secure and there is good news for you too. So in order to see just how good this Jesus is, this secure one is, we have to go back to the beginning, or technically, a little bit before the beginning. Have you ever wondered what God did before creation? Take like five seconds. What comes to mind? What stood out? Was he bored? Was he longing for someone else to experience what it's like to be him? You know, it's hard for us to imagine what God did before creation, both because we're creatures. It's hard for us to think outside of our frame of reference of time and space and finitude, but we also forget so often that God has always been in perfect fellowship with his son and his spirit before the very beginning. The father has eternally delighted in his only begotten son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The best language we have to capture the life of God is to speak of one life, one God shared in three identical persons, distinguished in their relationships as father, the beloved, the son, and the spirit proceeding from the father. And this is such good news because throughout the Bible, throughout all of Holy Scripture, the concept of God's glory is connected to his personal presence. This means that God has always been glorious. Before there's anybody else outside of his fellowship to see that, he's always been good. He's always been glorious. He's always been perfectly present and perfectly secure in who he is as Father, Son, and Spirit. Our God is not an anxious creator. We believe that God created to share the glory of his presence with other beings. The glorious life between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is so good that God created other things, a whole cosmos, to reflect that, to partake in that life, and even created human persons, human beings in his image and in his likeness, to be in increasing intimacy with him and his Son and his Spirit. We're made for that kind of security. Now, this brings up another important question how do you reciprocate that kind of love? Y'all, we have a hard time reciprocating greetings. You know what I'm talking about. Handshake, high five, fist bump, hug, side hug. With our middle and high schoolers, if we have more than three awkward interactions, we just agree, we're just gonna greet each other like Roman uh, centurions the next time and just make that our standard greeting. We're gonna embrace the awkward and go for it. All that to say, we are so, we even how to reckon with how to reciprocate greetings, much less this kind of love. But my friend, scholar Donald Fairbairn helps us note that obedience is actually a way a created being can reciprocate and respond to God in love. 
And that's because we're not his equals. When God issues a command to Adam and Eve at the first human persons in the book of Genesis, he was inviting them to love him in obedience, to actually respond in faith and in love. That's why the first disobedience of humanity in Genesis 3 results in that insecure and that restlessness that we know too well. Because to imagine that you are an equal with God is to imagine that you are self-secure, that you need nothing and nobody else. So now all of us, every one of us, has to reckon with our desire to be self-secure, to have full power to detach or perfectly attach to others or to things. We don't know the world or ourselves apart from restlessness and relational insecurity. And that's part of what Christians mean when we speak of this thing called the fall, this reality. But it is to a restless and an insecure people that Jesus comes. So I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, beginning in the first verse. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. You can find it on page 901 of your Black Pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, today's Gospel text is in the very middle of this teaching known as the Upper Room Discourse. The final moments before Jesus is, uh, is with his disciples, before his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. Now, chapter 15 picks up in a change of location. Jesus is shifting the venue, it seems. But this whole movement, this whole teaching, it's, it's as if Jesus is inviting the disciples into greater and greater degrees of intimacy, of greater and greater snapshot into who he is, who they are to them, and who the Father is to them. It starts in John 13 with Jesus taking the very form of a servant, washing his disciples' feet. And he's teaching, and he's teaching, and it concludes with Jesus praying to the Father and inviting his disciples to overhear it. They get a snapshot of how the Son speaks to the Father. It's remarkable. So here in chapter 15, Jesus begins by clarifying the different roles of life in him. He begins in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, unless we have any aspiring vineyards or, or the people who tend to vineyard in the room, which I'm not sure, maybe in a group of size, maybe we do have some winemakers among us, but most of us are not gonna be very familiar with this image. We don't know what it takes to tend a vine to bear fruit, to bear uh, grapes. But the original audience understood, these disciples understood that while the life and vitality reside in the vine, the branches are what bear the grapes. However, it is wildly important to attend and to the leaves and the branches, trimming where necessary, to open up more sunlight and to cultivate new opportunities for fruit. Vines and branches can grow and grow and grow. They can do lots of things, but to bear fruit, the vine dresser cares and intentionally cultivates. And Jesus is kind enough to explain what he means here. He is the vine. His father is the vine dresser who cultivates the branches that they might bear fruit. And then picking up in verse four, Jesus clarifies who we are in our relationship to him, the true vine. Again, in verse four, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Who are the disciples to Jesus? According to him, those who believe in him are intimately united to him. He is the true vine, we are the branches. So let me highlight a couple things from the section. First, Jesus is using a natural agrarian image to get across a relational reality, a natural image for a relational reality. The way a branch relates to a grapevine is to stay united to its source. That's a relational reality that Jesus is articulating. When you see the word abide in this passage, or remain as some translations say, think about it in relational terms as staying one, being one with, staying united to. Think about it as union with Jesus. And second, our union with Jesus is so intimate that he begins saying that it's as if what we ask of God, we receive, we begin asking the things that Jesus himself would ask. Delighting in the Father's will. We are so united that we begin asking and requesting the same thing where it's one movement. And finally, the fruit Jesus has in mind demonstrates God's glory to the world. And remember what we said earlier. God's glory is connected to his presence. For a branch to bear fruit is for the very life and presence of God to be present in the world, to be tasted, seen, and given freely for our good and for the sake of our neighbors. God only has himself to give, and so he gives it freely. There is no other source of life apart from Jesus. To live otherwise is to be like a branch thrown away and withering and consumed by fire. There is no other source of true secure life. Now, I'll be honest, the downside of preaching this text is at this point in the sermon, the preacher is supposed to have a really helpful illustration. The downside is Jesus beat me to the punch. The vine and branches, it's brilliant. Like, you can't top that. So my job at this point is just to connect the dot of the reality Jesus is getting at. The The reality is that we are secure because Jesus is secure. We are secure because Jesus is secure. We see this relational heart in verses nine through 12 when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, as the Father has loved me, that same love he's known since before the foundation of the world, eternally, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Who is Jesus to the Father? He's he's his eternally begotten son. And when he takes on our nature, he does it for our good so that everything he does, we benefit from. That person who has been eternally secure, who has never known a moment apart from his father's delight, he, him, That one, he's the one who has loved you. He's the one who invites you to be one with him. 
When Jesus took on all that it means to be human, including our obedience to God, he made a way for us to receive God's love securely and to reciprocate it to God again. So that same ecstatic love the Father has for the Son, Jesus says he has that for us. And so when he commands us to be one with him, he's inviting us to receive that love of God. By being in a relationship with the secure one, we are secure. And here's how secure Jesus was in his Father's love. When he was betrayed by a dear friend, he still obeyed his father. When the secure one hung upon the cross and in his humanity experienced what it's like for us to be relationally distant from the father, he still obeyed his father. When the secure one gave up his breath, he entrusted it to his father. And when he walked out of the tomb, He demonstrated that death does not get the last word because by eating death, the fruit of our disobedience, Jesus' secure love transformed death to be the way of life for us by faith to rest secure in his life and his love. He has always been and will continue to always be the first fruit of God's life and love. But let's be honest. Trusting the secure one is hard when you can't see him. The whole tension of the upper room discourse for the disciples and for us is that Jesus is going to die and then go away. Like it's wild. Think about this. God the Son takes on human nature, comes down for us and for our salvation. In his life, in his death, and his resurrection, he defeats sin, death, and the devil, and then he ascends. He leaves. For some of us, it feels like a common pattern in our lives. It's hard to feel attached to that kind of God sometimes. And at least Thomas and the apostles got to see his wounded hands and his feet bearing the wounds of the cross. But what do we get? For better and for worse, we get Christians. The world gets Christians. Have you ever wondered why Jesus entrusted his mission to broken, selfish, and insecure people? As a young person, I learned how to mask my insecurity through being wildly amenable. Someone described me as being doormat nice. (laughs) True story. But being a peacemaker in your family and friend group is a great way to keep your inner conflict at arm's length. The lie I've believed for most of my life is that I can, if I can manage the conflict outside of me, that will bring peace inside. You want to know what kind of fruit that bears? It's not great. <laughs> more self-hatred, more despair, more isolation, not real peace. And in the end, through people who knew me and know me and still love me, I found the signs of something more secure, a better, a deeper, abiding love, a better peace that I couldn't fight for. Throughout my life, people have loved me towards Jesus. Christians have loved me towards Jesus. And that's because in spite of all our faults and in spite of all our failures, God is present in people through the power of his Holy Spirit. Christian The Father has left you more than the promise that one day things will be all right. He has sent you his Holy Spirit. Christian love is that fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence at work in you and through ordinary people who are learning how to be secure in the Father's love because of Jesus. 
Jesus left only to send the life of God to us. God with us sent God within us. It's amazing. So the problem isn't God's absence, but the audacity of God's humility. We risk missing the life of God because it breaks our categories to believe that God is glorious enough to make his presence known through your neighbor. It's wild. God chose the same creatures who wrecked the world to be his healing hands and feet within the world. And that's why as a community, we believe in gathering like this to worship that God and to be formed together. That's why we believe in community groups. When our middle and high schoolers gather together for a group, we remind them why we do it. To be known, to be loved, and to grow in Christ. And y'all, our groups fail at this. We do. We will fail one another. We have. But by God's grace, we are secure to fail towards the cross. Amen? When we fail, we repent because we're safe to return to the love of God. Amen? God invites you to obey his will the next time because we're safe in his love. Amen? God is good. He's a patient father whose love changes you. The gospel we believe really means you are that loved, that valuable, and that secure in Christ. He is the secure one. And he still is meeting us in ways we can receive. It's God calling you to respond through the waters of baptism by coming to his table and tasting his life given for us. Even if you're not there yet, it's God calling you to partake in a community where maybe you can begin imagining that this is true, that he really is that good, that secure. Who are your neighbors? God is calling you to lay down your life for, for their good, because you know you're secure. Amen? Amen.